0: Welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian border citizenship, refugee and immigration issues. My name is Steve Murrens. I'm joined remotely today by Deanna Okonachoff and Aidan Campbell. Uh, Aidan is an associate lawyer at Mahone & Company uh, and uh, focuses on refugee and immigration litigation. Um, Aiden, Articled at a very very Prominent Well known national.
1: <laughs> okay firm, okay
0: Steve <laughs> Larley Rosenberg Before uh, venturing off uh, To join the world of um, I think more Well we describe it as Crimigration at a firm that focuses On uh, refugee Law, immigration Litigation as well as Criminal defense and extradition And At Aidan's firm, they are involved uh, in some Section 15 litigation in the immigration context. And that is going to be the subject of today's episode, which is Section 15 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and how it pertains to Canadian immigration. So the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is part of Canada's constitution, Um, Section 15 provides that every individual is equal before and under the law and has the right to the equal protection and equal benefit of the law without discrimination, and in particular, without discrimination based on race, national, or ethnic origin, color, religion, sex, age, or mental or physical disability. And uh, first, Aidan, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. And you're involved with some uh, litigation involving Section 15, and I was wondering if maybe you could provide a brief overview of what that section that I just read provides, sort of in layman's terms. So the
2: idea behind Section 15 is it's a broad anti-discrimination clause, uh, freedom specifically from uh discrimination by the state against you it's not where you go to seek protection from uh harassment or discrimination in the workplace or in uh kind of your engagement with private business that all of that's covered under canada's human rights codes but section 15 is your freedom from uh differential treatment on arbitrary grounds before the law um, so there are those enumerated grounds that you just read out written into the section of race, national or national or ethnic origin, color religion, sex, age, mental disability. and there's a number of what's called analogous grounds that is if you can define your particular category, um, as similar enough to those analogous grounds and there's a complicated legal test that we've decided not to explore in too much depth today um, about how to establish an analogous ground but there's a few that are quite prominent Uh, marital status um, near and dear to my heart uh, sexual orientation and gender presentation or uh, gender identity I should say and then off reserve Aboriginal status, and in the context of immigration, citizenship. Although throughout the episode, I think there's going to be a lot of commentary on how much the court actually believes what it says when it says that citizenship, uh, that is, non citizens and citizens, are treated alike under Canadian laws, particularly uh, when it comes to the border or coming into Canada or being allowed to stay in Canada. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Sorry. Um, There's also uh, a bit of a hook for discussing this today is the Supreme Court's recent decision in Fraser, and perhaps Steve, you want to uh, run through the facts there.
0: Um, Well, the facts of Fraser, which was a recent Supreme Court of Canada decision, as Aiden mentioned, uh, and I am. Uh, basically just going to read out the facts as presented by the majority on the Supreme Court. And if either of you want to add in anything at the end, do let me know. But the facts in brief of this case were that members of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, received benefits upon retirement from a pension plan. Greater benefits are provided to members with a record of high pay and long uninterrupted full-time service. Certain gaps in a member's record of service, such as being suspended or time spent on unpaid leave can be filled through a buyback process, which leaves their pension benefits unaffected. The RCMP did not provide a choice at this choice to available to full-time members who temporarily reduce their working hours under a job-sharing arrangement. So what the RCMP had introduced was um, for people who had to go part time for a certain period, the RCMP created a program and largely as the Supreme Court explained as a response to overwhelmingly, and I think nearly all, uh, wi- or yeah, all of uh, the people who took advantage of a job sharing program to work part time uh, for the main reason being childcare. So, women who were unable to work full time because they were raising their children could participate in a part time job share program, but they could not buy back those hours to get a full time pension and so the question before the supreme court was whether that breached the freedom of uh, a distinction and discrimination as aiden cited i don't know if there's any other facts you want to either if you want to add or
2: no i think that about covers it and i think the the really important thing to keep in mind with fraser is that it's looking at particularly the, this this pension buyback system didn't say uh This is for women. The job-sharing program didn't say this is a program only available to women. The law itself didn't create this distinction, rather underlying patterns in who is responsible for child care, who actually needs these kind of um, ameliorative programs or flex time programs. As you said, it was in evidence in that case that nearly or all of the people accessing the program were women and that moves us into what's known as adverse effects discrimination, um, the most recent articulation of the test before Fraser, or the strongest version of it I guess, coming from a case called Tapitat, um, and that to prove a, a, what's known, a prima facie or, or a first instance violation of section 15, uh, you had to prove that on its face it created, on its face or in its impact, a law creates a distinction based on enumerated or analogous ground and imposes a burden or denies a benefit in a manner that has the effect of reinforcing, perpetuating, or exacerbating disadvantage. And it's that adverse effect of this job-sharing program um, that was seen to violate Section 15. Um, yeah, the, sorry, go ahead, Steve.
0: Oh, just, uh, so to read from the uh, Supreme Court, they say adverse impact discrimination occurs when assuming seemingly neutral law has a disproportionate impact on members of a protected group. And so as Aidan mentioned, in this case, the pension buyback scheme didn't say women who work part-time or women in general aren't able to buy back their hours full-time. It's that all people who worked part-time weren't able to buy back those hours, but even though the law was seemingly neutral, it had a disproportionate impact on women.
2: The and this might seem um, like a long way to go to talk about uh, Section 15 in the immigration context, but I think this recent decision in Fraser, and and we'll get into some of this. I think is. Uh, really a, a strong affirmation of this adverse impact discrimination that I think has a lot of people in the equality rights world um, excited because it's there's a bit of a lack of clarity in, in a number of recent decisions about how strongly the court was going to interpret adverse impacts discrimination and uh, the dissent I think to, some, to the dismay, is worried exactly for the same reason that all of these uh, human rights lawyers are excited in that they see this as the start of a slippery slope towards um, what I would describe as a more equal and just society, but they might see as one with just more constitutional litigation and more things that uh, courts have to sort out. And it does, the, from a public administration perspective, Anything that hands lawyers and individuals more tools to challenge laws just makes it harder to govern. So there is always a trade-off between administrative efficiency and rights protection uh, that courts are concerned about, at least in the background. They don't usually come out and say it outright, but there is some level of wanting to make sure that the administrative state can still run effectively without... um, constantly being told that they're uh unintentionally violating people's rights and i think that's the fear behind adverse effects discrimination becoming too prevalent or being interpreted too strongly because you it's very hard to write rules in a society that is as unequal as ours that don't discriminate against somebody
0: um yeah in two cases that the supreme court cited uh show how this adverse impact can manifest itself in different ways so one of the cases they cited was actually an american case called griggs v duke power from 1971 and in that case i guess duke power had a requirement that employees have a high school diploma and pass standardized tests to work at the power plant and they were unable to show that either of these requirements were necessarily related to successful job performance, but the, for whatever reason, African-Americans were disqualified and not doing well on the standardized tests at a substantially higher rate than white applicants, and in that case, the United States Court found that to be an example of adverse impact discrimination. The other example, I mean, there's tons of examples, or several examples the Supreme Court cites, but another one that I think shows this uh, principle well was an Supreme Court of Canada decision called Ontario Human Rights Commission, the Simpson Sears Limited, in which uh, all employees at a store were required to work Friday, well, were required to work on Fridays and Saturdays. And there was an employee who was a member of the Seventh Day Adventist Church uh, who said that this was discriminatory. And even though the company, or the even though the company had said um, that the law applied equally to everyone, adverse discrimination was still found because it um, because The people of that religious group were uh just you know disproportionately impacted and not accommodated
1: i just wanted to add that i think that while uh it's relatively easy to keep the enumerated and analogous groups out of out of policy um i think the disproportionate impacts Um, are much more difficult uh, to ensure protection of. And so the idea of having an equality test that's not going to look at impacts, um, to me would be entirely neutralized. Um, And I think that the early charter litigation was fairly clear and unequivocal that if it's not substantive equality, then it's totally impotent. Um, I feel like I understand the uh, the idea behind um, administrative efficiency and you know mitigating the burden of the state and all this but that's what the section one part is because in any charter litigation it's not enough to show that there is discrimination. You also have to show that the discrimination is proportionate and so So, I mean, it seems to me that there's other built-in mechanisms to ensure that, like, okay, so there's discrimination, but still that they've minimized, they've mitigated that risk and all of that sort of thing. So, you know, for what it's worth, this is just kind of, I think, from anyone who's doing any kind of rights advocacy, um, this notion that that disproportionate impact is contentious, I think, isn't going to get very far because... uh, (laughs) You know, um, just keeping those words out of policy seems to be um, so irrelevant.
0: Yeah, Deanna raises an interesting uh, point that we hadn't mentioned earlier, which is just because something is found to breach Section 15 doesn't mean that it's automatically struck down. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's another part of Canada's charter, Section 1, which um, basically provides that a breach of certain charter rights will nonetheless stand, this is a real oversimplification, but if it's reasonable, which is judged on things like a substantial impressing objective, whether it's minimally impairing uh, and other factors. There is something to be said about, you know, do we want a system where it's really easy to find that a right is breached and it all becomes section one, or should it still be difficult to prove or should there still be a somewhat strenuous test to prove that a charter right is breached? Because if it's really easy to breach them, then, you know, what does that say about how we view those rights? If it's an automatic, yeah, it's breached. Yeah, it's breached.
2: Section 15 also has more internal limits than other rights. Um, not quite to the same degree as a section seven say, where there's a, an entire analysis of, of principle of fundamental justice, but, the, the way that both adverse effects discrimination and direct discrimination um, is analyzed also involves pretty substantial internal limits to the power. So I, I definitely, uh, I, was, I think that the, the dissent in Frazier's hand-wringing over slippery slopes is entirely uh, misplaced.
1: Yeah, agreed. And I I have to be a little bit sarcastic about this whole concern around floodgates of charter litigation. I mean, charter litigation is vastly, um, like, it's it's incredibly complex. It's incredibly expensive. Um, You know, when you look at it in the immigration context, like you need leave of the court to go even to the judicial review stage, you need a certified question to appeal, you need leave of the court to get to the Supreme Court of Canada, like these are, um, there's so many barriers that this idea of the administrative efficiency and, you know, and you do have section one, like it's, um, To me, you know, this whole notion that there's a slippery slope that all of a sudden the state is going to be overwhelmed by defending against charter litigation um, is a bit of a a non-starter.
0: Yeah, so as uh, Aidan mentioned, the dissent uh, talked about whether this could open the floodgates. I think much of this will hinge on, I think much of whether that happens will hinge on... How lower courts, and then probably eventually the Supreme Court again, interpret the evidence section from the majority in Fraser. So according to the majority, and again, I'll just read from the decision, in order to show whether there is a Section 15 charter breach, quote, two types of evidence will be especially helpful in proving that a law has a disproportionate impact on members of a protected group. The first is evidence about the situation of the claimant group. The second is evidence about the results of the law. Um, and courts will benefit from evidence about the physical, social, cultural, or other barriers, which provide the full context of the claimant's group situation. Evidence may come from the claimant, from expert witnesses, or through judicial review. These links may reveal that seemingly neutral policies are designed Well, for some and not for others. And then just skipping ahead. There is no universal measure for what level of statistical disparity is necessary to demonstrate that there is a disproportionate impact. And the court should not, in my rule or in my view, craft rigid rules on this issue. And skipping a bit, I see no reason for requiring the claimant to bear the additional burden of explaining why the law has such an effect in such cases the statistical evidence is itself a compelling sign that the law has not been structured in a way that takes into account the protected group's circumstances. And then just one final skip ahead before we talk about the evidence section. There is also no burden on the claimant to prove that a distinction is arbitrary. To prove a prima facie breach of section 15, it is for the government to demonstrate that the law is not arbitrary in its justificatory submissions under Section 1. Mm-hmm. And I guess the question that I have from that and going to the dissent point is, like the way I read it, there is an argument that, or it seems like what the court is saying, is that any statistical discrepancy in how a law impacts people, if it's a historically disadvantaged group, means that section 15 has been breached. And I think that's how the dissent reads it, but is there an interpretation? Do you think I, that that is the correct interpretation, or is it reading too much, like that there's something that would prevent such a an automatic breach interpretation that I'm missing?
2: I think this is so... I came out of law school more recently than both of you and this was a sort of very live discussion in my discrimination law classes is how much can you rely on just data without logic or without some kind of connective tissue between it and how much of that burden is placed on the claimant and that is that sort of internal limit that I was discussing before. And Fraser. I think rightly moves away from that. I think there's a lot out there you can point to, um, showing the sorts of adverse impact in a statistical way that is hard to parcel out and say that there's any. Um, not that you you have to be looking for ill will, but that there is some kind of mechanism that is particularly harming this this uh, this impacted group Um, it was it's sort of hard to see what how you show it with other than by just presenting all the statistical evidence there's it's gonna be hard to find a smoking gun internally saying oh what we were actually trying to do by writing this this rule is to exclude women from their pension benefits or that they were making that decision without regard to the fact that they could be doing that. Mm.
1: But I think that it strikes me that it depends on, you know, like when you're doing any kind of data, data analysis, it depends on whether the difference is statistically significant. And also whether those um, statistical, like if it's 100% of the people are women, then that's obviously a statistically significant distinction, but also it reflects um, already pretty well accepted social norms. (laughs) And, you know, like, um, you know, there could be other examples of this, you know, um, if you're going to talk about who is accessing certain services, who is reporting certain kinds of experiences, you know, and if there's a statistical significance, in this disparity, that is co- co- corroborated by things that are reported, generally accepted norms. It seems to me that that would be the evidence that would be put forward by somebody making the allegation. And those two things, and then again, that that in those two things together would help to make the case. And then it's the onus shifts um, to the government to. Um, that's my reading of that I don't know if that's sort of borne out in subsequent jurisprudence
0: well I don't know if there is subsequent jurisprudence <laughs> the, um, decisions if like it will people. be borne yeah. out
1: yeah exactly
0: but uh well and I think the dissent would add there like the significant the statistical significant concept doesn't appear in the majority decision which is one of the things they ask what is substantive equality and Aiden, you're since, as you mentioned, you're, this was much more of a live topic in law school, like, is there, is what, what, as, what is substantive equality, which is something the decision kind of leaves unaddressed much to the dissent chagrin? I th-
2: think that the issue there is um, that you can't, the, 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 there's the easy, kind of layperson description of formal versus substantive equality I'm sure you guys have seen um, the uh, everyone standing behind a fence one very tall person one medium tall person and one shorter person Uh, the guy at the top of the fence can see over it clearly the guy in the middle has a slightly obscured view the guy at the bottom is looking straight at the fence and that's your your formal equality, everyone has to stand behind the fence. The rule is neutral, Um, it's fine, and then a, a, sorry, that's a kind of neutral rule imposing a differential impact on these three different people. Formal equality would be to give them all a box to stand on. The tallest person already didn't need the box, but now is standing slightly higher. The middle person can now see unobstructed, and the bottom person still can't see through the fence substantive equality would be to actually address the problem and to provide each person with what they need to have a a similar outcome in this case which would be actually being able to see over the top of the fence this gets very very difficult when you start talking about like what is the goal of anti-discrimination law because whether you're trying to say level the playing field or equalize outcomes are you trying to completely redistribute opportunity or advantage? Are you just trying to make sure nobody's being cut out? How do you actually draw the lines between these things is very very difficult and not always the role of courts or the the role of section 15 like it's those are much broader policy questions. For sure. Um, And I think that in the public discussion of anti-discrimination law they can get very muddy and and overlapping. Um but in this case, I think that the, the question of whether what degree of statistical significance, how much of a particular population needs to be impacted, um, is a very difficult question and will probably be open. There probably isn't a number so much as as the court says, What's the evidence like? Is it a, a disproportionate sort of means at least an overwhelming percentage of people in this effective group are? implicated and it is affecting that group more than it is affecting other people um, the an older one from human rights jurisprudence that isn't a charter case but is using the same theoretical um, framework would be the Marin uh, fireman uh, testing decision that they had uh, particular physical requirements for firefighters who needed a certain lung capacity needed to be able to to run a course in a certain time and I think lift something I can't remember the exact facts of Mayor anymore Um, but some women were able to do it just not most women and some men were not able to do it and were excluded but in general more far more women could not do the course and despite the fact that many of them could have been totally effective firefighters um, and that occupational requirements and so the the question of this level of kind of minute, um, the question of these sort of like small, uh, how much is disproportionate, uh, occupational licensing is one and, and occupational testing is an area where that is sort of being litigated. And I think that the Section 15 jurisprudence should start l- and, and is definitely looking and drawing from those decisions um, and by the work of human rights tribunals.
1: And is it dealing with that under the Section 15, or is it dealing with it on the bona fide occupational requirement, kind of?
2: I think that there is, are cases, like, Mirror where it's it's not just looking at whether it's a bona fide occupational requirement, which is the other part of, that's where that they, the two the systems are to diverge. Yeah, exactly. Um, but just looking at, first off, kind of the prima facie discrimination, Yes. that test should start to be the same. Right, of course. Um, and so the two areas can kind of draw on each other, and just the, the volume of litigation in human rights tribunals is so much higher that I mm-hmm. think that, that allows uh, a development of more consistent, what actually is disproportionate. Uh, For sure. How do you identify these, these disparate impacts?
0: Yes. And um, moving into the dissent, there were two dissents. The first was from... Justice Brown and um, Roe, there's a brief disagreement over how the plan works, uh, but as far as substantive legal challenges, the first uh, argument that the dissent made was that um, the job buyback program was something that was done to try to promote greater equality between men and women by giving women part-time through a job share, and that by striking this down, it would dissuade governments from trying to introduce helpful legislation like that in the future. I'm not sure how persuasive I found that. Um, and if either of you have comment beyond, you don't think that governments would actually not try to help people because... The courts might strike it down. I don't know. I didn't find that part.
2: I, I think it's totally unpersuasive given uh, Section 2, um, which dis- specifically allows so called affirmative action programs. The idea being that you're allowed to help, you just actually have to be helping. You uh-huh. can't make a program that's supposed to help and
0: fail. So it's more of a question of policy design. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like if there was no program at all, the same issue likely would have arisen in that, uh, I guess, women are being unable completely to participate in a pension or have a job because they need to have childcare. So it seems like the same issue would arise anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it um, seems a bit circuitous logic. The other, uh, I mean, some of that we've already raised, what is substantive equality, Uh, that there should be a greater reliance on establishing causation. Um, And then…
1: But just on that point, like, I think that the idea of putting the onus to establish causation on a claimant, to me, um, seems um, just overwhelming. uh, you know, even just presenting the data, it it can be quite onerous, I imagine. Um, And maybe Aiden can speak to that component, but the idea of trying to establish causation, to me would um, put like the death nail in that coffin. Um, You know, it basically, you know, it's like saying you'd have to prove some kind of malicious intention.
2: um, Yeah, I, I do think that, and this is one that I've always had difficulty with and I think is is sort of the most difficult theoretical underpinning of discrimination law across the board is is causation and how much what you need to show a disparate impact and again what you're actually trying to ameliorate here with protections against discrimination. Yeah. Um, I mean I think
1: that any 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 government putting forward any policy is going to say that it has an ameliorative um, intent. Um, So trying to disprove that, you you know, seems to be next to impossible. They have all this policy machinery and all of these, you know, resources, whereas the complainants who are experiencing the impact don't.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and that's, I think, the one of the single biggest challenges in bringing charter claims generally. Um, the amount of social science evidence you have to be able to present, uh, you end up usually completely uncompensated, asking academics and others to write reports or to weigh in and give testimony. If you look at the the application record in something like um, Canadian Doctors for Refugee Care, which we're going to talk about in a minute, um, it's just overwhelming. Like, you need so much, or in the recent uh, Safe Third Country Agreement case, the mm. number of, of affidavits both from the, the people concerned, the named applicants, um, the expert opinion from lawyers in the United States about the conditions of detention, um, on and on. The, the, the level of material you have to put together, it this isn't something that individuals can actually do on their own usually. It's something that in this context was brought by um, people who do large class action style anti-discrimination cases, um, who have machinery able to do that or work on very large contingencies. Um, or you need these these broad laws that affect a number of people mm-hmm. to ever actually have them subject to a challenge. So either you need a a huge human rights bar um, with, you know, funding from the Court Challenges Program or from uh, different um, public interest groups that already have funding to do this kind of work. Um, But the idea that individuals subject to discriminatory laws have the ability to actually challenge them is a bit... um, it's just, I mean, it's a problem with legal of. wrongs. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and... yeah,
1: yeah. Well, even <laughs> I mean, just this point of experts, you know, like, um, you know, convoking experts who are going to be able to speak to these things. And as you said, largely uncompensated. And just the complexity behind getting that expert testimony in front of the court, I think, is is lost on many people. Um, yeah, I think we could do an entire podcast on this yeah. subject. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Maybe it makes sense to move into the actual yeah, uh, so. immigration cases then, and start with the high watermark of uh, Andrews, and then watch everything disintegrate from there.
1: Yeah, a little bit. I think that's a good way of, of framing it. Then we can problematize, as we said from the <laughs> outset. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you? Uh, oh, just quickly, there was another dissent, Cote, who basically just said it's not that they're women; it's that they're having kids. They've, to summarize um, yeah, I that. don't know which, summarize uh, that yeah. which other people are having a lot of That's
1: right. Uh, totally so, so What he's
2: trying to do is be trans-inclusive and talk about the For handful sure. of trans men who have children. And I'm that's sure that's exactly what he was on about and not just weasel,
0: <laughs> employing total weasel logic.
1: Completely.
0: <laughs> so in terms of uh, shifting to immigration, um, Deanna, do you want to do Andrews?
1: Well, Andrews, I mean, I think that that Aiden's absolutely right that this is the high watermark. and I, I really like uh, Catherine Dauverne, who's um, kind of a scholar that we like to talk about in the immigration context a lot. Um, wrote a paper. Um, I, I need to actually name it. How has the chart? No, how the Charter has failed non-citizen in Canada, uh, reviewing thirty years of Supreme Court of Canada jurisprudence, and you know, I think that she she does a very good job and we could maybe even provide a link to her paper, which is from 2013, but still, um, there have been some good um, uh, Section 15 cases, and not, not, I don't think, at the Supreme Court of Canada level um, in an immigration context since, but, um, you know, from the Court of Appeal, but um, but she's, she talks about Andrews as being something that set, set hopes high um, about, you know, can the charter be evoked in the case of a non-citizen and this is um, involving a person, a non-Canadian, who was seeking um, to uh, to practice law in Canada um, and therefore seeking a license with the Law Society of British Columbia. And Uh, I think it's been a long time since I read Andrews, but I think it was that at the time, the policy was that there was a restrictive rule with respect to practicing by non-Canadians, and then a challenge was brought um, under Section 15, and it was determined at that stage that that this rule was Uh, that this rule was discriminatory and therefore the policy that the LSBC had, that the law society had put into place was struck down. So I think that uh, the reason why Aidan is calling it the the high uh, watermark is because if you were hopeful that this was going to become the standard that would be applied in subsequent uh, immigration jurisprudence um, around non-citizens, then I think that that, that it's never quite lived up to those um, high standards that were that were put out there in Andrews. So I don't know if you guys want to add anything further just about how that set up.
2: Yeah, I would just say it's um, not lost on me that a that the the standard is set for a.
1: White, white man. British, <laughs> <He's
2: a> lawyer. <laughs> uh, man. Lawyer. Lawyer wanting to practice law. Said, oh, I'm yeah, sure no, he was straight. Certainly yes. don't want to distinguish you from other white Canadian men who want to practice law and of course exactly. this is discrimination based on national origin. Well, and this then- is
1: why I wanted you to talk about comparator groups from the beginning. Who are you comparing him against? Well he's just kind of like everybody else that wants to get called to the bar. So <laughs>
2: Yeah, and then I think it's useful just to follow uh, Professor Doverin's paper, which I really like on this, uh, in her discussion of Chiarelli, Chiarelli, um, which starts to claw that back. And basically, the relevant thing from Chiarelli, it's more of a Section 7 case, but it discusses Section 15 kind of offhandedly and just dismisses most of it. Um, on the grounds that another part of the charter, that is the mobility provisions under Section 6, themselves make a distinction between citizens and permanent residents and basically uses that. I guess uh, we should say Andrews basically establishes that citizenship is, in fact, an analogous ground. Right. And then that right. that's sort of that rug is sort of just pulled out from under the immigration bar completely in Girelli when they say, well, actually. The Charter makes a distinction between PRs and citizenships. That means the government can too, no matter what they're doing. And to my mind, kind of undermines Section 15 jurisprudence in the immigration space from there on out, because every subsequent case goes back to Tirelli and tries to sort of say, well, it's fine to make these distinctions. You're always going to be making distinctions in terms of people's ability to remain in Canada, at least. And I think... Uh, Professor Doverne does a very good job at showing how the the logic from Girelli, which might be good logic in terms of removal cases, um, that what Section 6 is about is your ability to enter and remain in Canada, um, might not actually apply in other cases of distinction between citizens and non-citizens, but it's employed there anyway.
1: But there are strange outliers that, that um, <laughs> that Catherine Devan speaks to, too, like you look at the case of Mavis Baker, which was like, you know, not a straight white man, but a black poor woman. And they were like, rather than dealing with that as an equality case, they dealt with it as an international law case, which was strange because they don't like dealing with international law at all. And they almost always refuse to do so. But when they came upon a case that sort of couldn't be abided, the outcome they just—it's almost like she calls it, I think, a decidedly non-charter case or an adamantly non-charter case. It's like we refuse to go here because we can't reconcile Ciarelli with um, with Andrews, and we're not gonna we're not gonna try to do this over this this kind of landmine case. Um, and so they just. They took it into the international realm. Um, I don't know.
2: I think Baker's also interesting because it's not um, humanitarian decision making. Uh, Baker was a PR application on humanitarian and compassionate grounds. And that is such a discretionary decision on the part of the officer reviewing the application that it's really hard to bring in the charter into these admin law cases, um, the DORE framework tries to do so. It's very difficult to think about the application of equality values in discretion and imposing non-discrimination standards on on individual discrimin- decision makers is really, really difficult mm. because it's yeah. not about challenging. There's nothing challenged in the how one makes a permanent residence application under the humanitarian framework. Some okay. other uh,
0: immigration decisions, um, as Aiden mentioned, Chiarelli was a removals uh, uh, case. Another wasn't so much an immigration case, but one with obvious implications, um, which was Lavoie v. Canada, and that involved the federal government, the federal public service giving preference to Canadians uh, over permanent residents, or sorry, giving pre- yeah, distinction there between Canadian citizens and foreign nationals, and obviously this arises in the immigration context with the selection of immigrants and foreign workers in particular, and the process to hire a foreign worker, and the court found that, yeah, it's discriminatory, but it's justified under Section 1 of the Charter um, different reasons. The other, some other immigration decisions uh, that I pulled up just from Canley in um, YZ v. Canada, citizenship and immigration, was a where the courts struck down under the Harper government, the refugee system was overhauled to classify refugees into those who came from certain countries and those who came from countries that were designated as safe. I think this
1: can safely be called like the landmark uh, decision of uh, you know probably since since Andrews, uh, well, I mean, there's the, the Canadian Doctors for Refugee Care is another one, I would say that, like, I know that that's on your list too, Steve, but these two are kind of almost like companion cases because they both, to some extent, re- you know, relate to those DCO um, claimants. Uh,
0: yes, yeah. and both cases I... are similar uh, in that the distinctions made between refugees from quote-unquote safe countries and refugees made, or refugees from other countries was found to be an unjustified discriminatory law.
2: I think these are interesting because they're so, the DCO regime was so clearly a distinction based on national origin.
0: For sure. Like
2: the idea that they thought that it could possibly be constitutional. Yeah, to make exactly. these Very specific national origin distinctions. I think the really interesting thing looking forward from Frazier and considering these national origin, um, decisions are I guess we should say briefly that YZ is a case about uh, your right to appeal to the refugee appeal division if you're from one of these designated countries and um, that was struck down so that bar to accessing the refugee appeal division was struck down and then Canadian Doctors for Refugee Care was about um, access to the Inter- interim federal health program um, to DCO people which I always struck me as incredibly cruel. And this was, mm. you know, I was just about to go into law school, I think, when this was coming out. And so this was some of the the, the cases that were really hot on everyone's mm. mind um, as I got into this field. And they were the cases that were sort of working their way through the system when yeah. I first started to pay attention to these issues. And it just seemed like we were winning all the time. But there's also a, a feeling that what I have seen in retrospect is a lot of this was uh decades of cleanup from harper era laws uh which were nakedly unconstitutional yeah for ages sure ages to be declared as such um
1: but even after that like it wasn't until 2019 that those prohibitions actually like came off the website too so yeah. it, it took a super long time
2: the the yeah the DCO regime still exists as far as I understand, but just none of the countries are listed. Exactly. Um, and it's interesting. There are all sorts of interesting questions about, you know, the veras of all the rulemaking powers there. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I was going to say that the what's interesting about basically what, what happens if the government doesn't make a list, but instead builds these rules that say make it so much easier for an Indian or a Nigerian person to come to Canada because of language abilities and all this other stuff, Uh, all these other factors that are privileged under Canada's economic immigration regime uh, as against somebody from right across the border in Pakistan, say, um, or um, any number of other country. And I think that there are the the difficulty there is bringing evidence, but there probably is a lot of adverse effects discrimination taking place in all of these otherwise neutral rules across Canada's economic immigration pathways. Oh
0: yeah, and that oh, yeah. and this both leads into the final uh, case that I wanted to mention, and then different, not hypothetical, but different possible uh, discriminatory aspects in effect of Canada's immigration system. But the case was Austria v. Canada, which was a federal court of appeal decision from, uh, Deanna, you'll remember this, when the Conservatives terminated hundreds of thousands of uh, federal skilled worker applications. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And the appellants there brought forward arguments to say, kind of like what Aiden was just uh, suggesting, this is very visa-specific and so drawing a uh, discriminatory distinction based on visa post and the federal court of appeal didn't actually get into the whether or not it would recognize this substantive equality argument but rather just said well there's no evidence insufficient evidence that um, there are these distinctions and what was sort of interesting in the decision was the applicant said well the government has the evidence and they're not sharing it like shouldn't there be an obligation that the government provide this data and the court was unmoved by that but let's get into possible um, areas of is it discriminatory or not so like and Aidan you just gave the example of both different we'll call it different approval rates and different processing times both of which are features of Canada's immigration system You know, an applicant from China, an applicant from Pakistan will have a different, there'll just be a different processing time and approval rate between those two countries. That's completely even ignoring the fact that they need visas to visit Canada, whereas people from the UK or France don't. Like, is that discriminatory under the Fraser test?
2: I think it's very difficult to say how you would get that particularly overseas visa stuff is going to be very difficult because you have to establish the reach of the charter in the first place and obviously any time you're engaging with a Canadian official you're protected by the charter but I think it would be difficult to bring that kind of case on section 15 grounds I don't know what you'd think about these ones Uh, Deanna?
1: Oh my goodness I find them like just the evidentiary burden of trying to present them in the first place makes my stomach hurt (laughs)
0: Um,
1: but also because of what you said even around the Baker decision just the role of discretion you know, so much of visa office decision making and just so much of the the overall, like um, let's say you're talking about study permit applications at one office versus the other, you know, the kind of evidence that they would tender in terms of um, the types of factors, the country specific factors that would be um, considered, you know, the economic push and pull factors, there's just so much material there. You know, and there is jurisprudence that says, you know, the fact that, let's say, the economic pull factors in Canada are going to be more attractive to someone, say, from the Philippines as compared to someone uh, in, uh, I don't know where to in Australia they say that that's not supposed to be determinative of the outcome of the application but we know in reality that these are the types of things that visa officers determine whether or not those turn up in the reasons Um, most officers are savvy enough to not actually write that down in their (laughs) reasons for refusal and so just trying to actually mobilize a case with these types of factors to show that this is a discriminatory decision um, I feel like uh, um, yeah, just kind of and spitballing here.
2: Again, it's difficult to show. it wouldn't. You'd have to look more at the structure of the application program. I feel like something like a study permit application is very hard to show that there is a distinction being made in the neutral rules that exist, that the, that the, the neutral rules are having an adverse impact. But I think that something like language testing or
0: but isn't it just that you can see that there's an adverse impact by the effect if those statistical variances do exist? And then it's just section one after that to figure out whether that it's...
2: could be. And I think that that's the potential promise here is that the what they say about causation does open the door to a lot more of these things being introduced. And I, I'm just not optimistic given all the Problems with Section 15 in the immigration context, we've already yeah. talked yeah. about that. I think you need a lot more stats only, kind of A tip driven <laughs> Section 15 jurisprudence in provinces elsewhere. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly not like a DCO kind of a situation yeah. where, like you said, a naked um unconstitutional provision um it is kind of neutral on its face and i think to distinguish between it being um the statistics to bear it out and then um you know to show that even if you had the statistics to show that this wasn't just about there being a disproportionate um factual background based on the, the actual eligibility criteria, um, I think would be um, a near impossible task.
0: Yeah. Now, what about something like, well, I mean, it no longer is the case, but it used to be the case that caregivers, predominantly female applicants, could not bring their spouses with them. Um, Deanna, I know you're really involved in this program. Like, was that generally viewed as discriminatory?
1: Um, Well, by me personally, but (laughs) in terms (laughs) of the law, (laughs) no. (laughs) Um, There are other issues with respect to caregivers that um, I found to be more potentially contentious, such as, um, you know, issues... You, there were other things that I thought were more potentially contentious, such as the way that they were um, that they were entered into Canada in this kind of hybrid way. They were admitted as temporary residents and they medicaled at that point, but then they were re-medicaled later and they could be found medically inadmissible at a later date. And that was sort of something that I really took issue with. Um, um, Anyways, I I think the other things come a lot of, a a lot of the issues that I saw that I thought were um, issues um, came from specific issues that dealt with them being from the Philippines and the majority were at the time and there were just a lot of issues that came up as a result of marriage laws in the Philippines that I thought were quite unique to their particular circumstances where divorces would not have been available and that was sometimes something that that arose in terms of just medical and criminal and criminal admissibility issues that came up.
2: I actually think the caregiver program is a perfect example of where the adverse effects discrimination um, becomes really apparent and why and it's also why it's so difficult is that here's a group of people who are almost 100 percent female and almost 100% Filipino, or maybe 90% Filipina for a number of years. Uh Um, Like this isn't some blip, it's just a program that was basically facilitating the arrival of women from a single country to work a single occupation um, and treated them completely differently than the rest of the immigrants to Canada. Um, And I think that not being able to, the specific not being able to bring your family Difficult comparator there is hard to say like who is the the other model PR immigrant because there was no program like the caregiver program with the work for two years into PR stream. Uh-huh. I
1: tried making a charter argument on a caregiver <laughs> application very early in my career, and Madam, um, Madam Justice Snyder basically laughed me at of course, <laughs> and of course I didn't have the funding or the budget or the research potential, and so... Um, you know, but it, it is a really hard one. She took the position essentially that they were uniquely privileged because, unlike any other low-skilled workers, they were the only ones who did have a pathway to permanent residence. So uh, that comparator group was their unique privilege um, in the view of the court. Um, in my case, as opposed to their the opposite. Oh, yeah,
2: interesting. As mm. Fraser says, you you think what we got that. Ameliorative programs actually have to be ameliorative, and if what you're actually doing is bringing people over into bondage, which was kind of the case for a number of years.
1: Entirely. um, Oh, I'm I'm not sure that that's over, but um,
2: yeah.
1: yeah. (laughs) Yes, but um, yeah, it's a it's a very it's a it's it's very um, ripe for a lot of challenges for sure. Um, but again, it's it's always been an issue in terms of um, the right case and um, the ability to actually bring some of these challenges.
2: I think a lot of the new hyper targeted programs could potentially run afoul of this. The, out-of-work gta construction workers program being maybe the like highlight of the current model of immigration legislation or not even legislation but um hyper specific targeting with very strange admission criteria Mm, that aren't that are creating these very specific distinctions um that probably are having massive um Adverse impacts um, yeah. in terms of who can access them.
0: It's well, and the other, and possibly one most similar to the fact pattern here, is the question of Canadian work experience and pregnancy or math leave mm. um, and why or whether there should be. Right now, the position is that that doesn't count as Canadian work experience, and I can see the arguments for it, but whether there should be work permit extensions or status extensions to take that into consideration, where a neutral law that just says, you know, you graduate from school here, you get a three-year postgraduate work permit, and then hopefully you get one year of Canadian work experience in that can be thrown off for someone who... uh, gets pregnant, and needs to take mat leave.
2: Yeah, I think that that's a a really good example, especially given the demographic of students. You know, it's it's women graduating into their prime childbearing years, although people are... They're mostly
1: women, as we've discovered from the descent in Fraser. They are not (laughs) all women, apparently. (laughs) They just happen to be... They just happen to
2: be bearing the brunt of the child care right
1: exactly yes. people
2: who bear the brunt of child bearing and rearing
1: exactly um
2: the I think there's a really we haven't even touched um discrimination on the basis of disability probably for a wow. reason it was the yeah. early decision in in Chester at the Court of Appeal or sorry at um this is a federal court um, basically saying that Canadian admissibility policy is fine <laughs> even though it to my mind there's no way it could actually be non-discriminatory because it's very specifically ties um, the amount of healthcare spending that you will incur over the years following your landing in Canada to your admissibility to Canada which and I think there was a very viable challenge from uh, AIDS groups uh, that was undercut by them making an exception for HIV AIDS. (laughs) Yeah Uh, and especially
1: because that the policy that they were utilizing at the time I imagine was a policy based on very very outdated Um, HIV protocols, I don't know if that was actually the case, but I know for a long time they were using, like, the the medical manual was relying on HIV policy that no doctor in Canada was actually implementing in terms of, like, what's the viral load, and this makes you, you know... Um, yeah. But also a lot of it has to do with things like what are Canada's agreements with various pharmaceutical companies. And that's like, yeah. if you got into a bad deal, dudes, then like, how is that something that gets passed along on somebody who requires this medication, you know? Um, so a lot of that is. Uh,
0: oh, that's a yeah, that's an interesting. I hadn't thought about that. that
1: oh, my goodness. The with government HIV negotiates the was, drug prices. It was so critical in that because retroviral, um, you know, the um, so many of the drugs that were being used were subject to these agreements where that same drug would be available for a small fraction of the price in a different jurisdiction. But Canada was locked into these agreements that were like just really antiquated, and until they, so you know, if you could, I actually had clients who would like change medication, um, and if they could tolerate the other medication, we could make the argument that they were no longer medically inadmissible. And it's like
0: it was kind of insane. Very weird, sitting opposite someone being like, so do you want to go on the generic drug? Um, so I'm getting ping that I have to take my toddler son to the library soon to look at Halloween books. Are there any closing thoughts on the uh, on the subject of Section 15 in the Charter? Obviously, Aiden, you'll be writing factums, but... Uh...
2: I have a lot to say about how <laughs> the Safe Third Country Agreement oh my uh, discriminated against uh, LGBTQ persons in detention uh, because basically subjecting any particularly trans person to ICE detention is to my mind to end amount to torture um but uh, yeah forthcoming to a federal court near you
0: yeah we uh, yeah. haven't done safe third country i think in like three years we did yeah. an episode on one and it's definitely worth revisiting
1: well since the law has like kind of sort of changed um well <laughs>
0: <laughs> well it was struck down and then brought back pending uh the federal court of appeal decision, and then maybe the Supreme Court.
1: Yeah. Oh, I'll be. I think we can be certain of that.
2: Yeah. Um. My my only closing thoughts: are that it's it seems uncertain. Uh, a lot of the victories in the Section 15 space have been on such kind of blindingly obvious cases that I'm worried that it's going to take a long time for the federal court to internalize some of the more nuanced causation the changes in the causation arguments um that yeah. i think are rotten fraser i i am not optimistic that that will cycle through or overcome the general presumption that you're allowed to kind of admit or not admit whoever you want if you're the government because that's what it means to be a country we've decided is absolute control over your borders hmm. um, and that's not a very nuanced legal analysis for me, but that's more of just a, a power politic view of how all of this stuff shakes out. Yeah. And what
1: you're calling the obvious cases, you're basically talking about like de facto, like prima facie discrimination, like the DCO, where exactly. it's like you don't even right. have to get into substantive equality.
2: They literally made a list of countries. They yeah. <laughs> and treated like how people more differently obvious based on those get? countries.
1: Right yeah yeah no i mean that sounds about right actually um i hope you're wrong but
2: Same, <laughs> I, Totally. <laughs> yeah
1: you hope you're wrong too yeah Steve
2: will be able to tell you that from my articles um i was often the the most pessimistic in any challenge we were bringing but often yeah. i was proven wrong sometimes we were
0: good yeah yeah I've learned you could divide articling students into the optimists and the pessimists when they come in. <laughs> like, yeah. And, uh, it's a realist.
1: Yeah, I definitely <laughs> expect the worst and then I'm pleasantly surprised if I'm wrong.
0: All <laughs> right. It's a good
1: way to be. Okay, that That's was so very cool. interesting. Thank you so much for your time, Aiden.
0: Yeah, that was awesome.
1: Best of luck with the, Thanks
0: for uh, having
2: the me, both challenges
1: do. to come. Yeah. Okay, bye for now.